supernatural is something that isn't supposed to happen, but it does happen. AM 1420, WBSM presents Spooky South Coast with your hosts, Tim Weisberg and Matt Costa. Good evening and welcome to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here along with science advisor Matt Moniz, the silent assassin Matt Costa. We'll probably be joining us a little bit later on. He's got that new work schedule, so we never know when he's going to be here with us on the program. But uh, we do have a great show for you tonight. We're here to talk about the paranormal, as we are each and every Saturday night. And tonight we're going to delve into one of my favorite topics of all time on this show, and just in general, the Amityville case. Uh, We're going to focus on mostly on the DeFeo murders with filmmaker Ryan Kassenbach. He is the... Uh, director, the researcher, the writer, he basically did everything uh, for this new film, Shattered Hopes, the true story of the Amityville murders. And this is part one from Horror to Homicide. So we'll have Moniz throw it up on Spooky TV. There you go. And uh, basically, uh, it's the first of three parts of all of Ryan's research. It's It's been a number of years that he's put into this. He'll talk with us about the uh, journey from original concept to the film itself. And this part, like I said, from Horror to Homicide, it focuses on just the beginning stages of the whole Amityville case. And it talks about the DeFeo family, their family history, uh, how they came to be so dysfunctional, and what might have led Ronnie Butch DeFeo Jr. to commit those murders. And we'll talk about all that with Ryan coming up in just a little bit. Amityville shows, of course, Matt Moniz, are always huge I don't want to say ratings getters, but they're huge downloads and huge views. And it's just, it seems to be one of those topics that people just can't get enough of. Oh, I hear you. It's a, it's a story that everybody knows. That's why they like it, because it's familiar. And uh, it's not, not a bad story either. No, and what, what impresses me about this film is that you can tell the extra research that Ryan did. I mean, there's a lot of information in here that you just haven't heard anywhere else when it comes to Amityville. So... We'll get into all that with Ryan. I don't want to give away anything now, uh, but there were just some surprises as I was watching the film that I was like, wow, I see. And uh, one of the things that I really want to get into tonight is the – we didn't really touch upon it when we had Ryan on the show previously. I want to get into Ronnie Sr., big Ronnie DeFeo, and about – he had a strange quirk. With his personality, aside from being an abusive father and husband and uh, probably being mobbed up and, and stealing from the mafia and all these things that we'll talk about later on, he had uh, something interesting that uh, we'll, we'll, we'll find out. He, th- there's some parallels, I think, and I've always said this, but there's some parallels, I think, between this case and the Lizzie Borden case, you know, and this may be something that is a trend that results in a lot of these cases, too. So, I think I know where you're going. Well, we'll talk about uh, some of that stuff. And more, uh, actually, I, I just realized what it might be that you think that I'm thinking, but it's not. Yeah. I don't know if you want to let Costa in. He's, he just pulled up. I he's, can. He's still in the truck. But uh, So we'll talk with Ryan in just a little bit. But before that, we've got some things that we're going to go over. Uh, now, one of the things we talked about last week is the fact that we're in the middle of a uh, upgrade to SpookySouthCoast.com, uh, trying to make it a little bit more user-friendly 
and trying to make it a little bit more easy to navigate because what happens is we just keep adding stuff. And so with the new version of SpookySouthCoast.com, it's easier to get to the archives. Uh, the video archives are now all hosted through YouTube. So instead of having to go to Ustream and find the individual shows, they're all laid out there by date in YouTube. So it's a lot easier. If you've ever missed any of the shows and you want to watch what goes on on Spooky TV here in the Spooky Studio, you can watch them on YouTube. And of course, if you want to check it out live, you just have to go to SpookySouthCoast.com, go to the Live Show tab at the top of the page. And select the Spooky TV from the drop-down menu, and you'll be able to see what's going on in the studio and chat and interact as it's going on. So it's, it's going to be, as we keep building it, it's going to be more and more uh, content on there. Right now, it's pretty bare bones, but uh, you, know, you can navigate around it pretty easily. We do have the T-shirts up for sale. Which We sold the T-shirt, Matt Costa. Can you believe that? After all these years, we finally sold the T-shirt. And it wasn't a Cafe <laughs> Press T-shirt. Yeah. Hold on. There you go. One, hello? Hey. One more time in the headphones. You're not getting the headphones? No. Uh, it helps if you yeah, you gotta plug get one in. that's plugged in. I know. It's kind of funny. I kick him out of his regular seat, and he doesn't even know how to plug in headphones anymore. <laughs> so don't worry. You'll be, you'll be coming back over here in a few minutes. But, uh, so okay. we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna talk about uh, Amityville tonight with uh, Ryan Katzenbach is coming back. I'm just getting – we'll get Matt Costa up to speed. Not that he wasn't listening in the truck on the way here. But uh, also on the website, too, you'll see the, the slider – that goes at the top of the page. You'll see uh, the advertisement for Legend Trips for our upcoming event, uh, April 21st, Graveyard Shift at Slater Mill. If you want to grab your ticket then uh, when you're on the website, you can do so. And then also you'll see the slider for Tiffany's show, uh, Spirit Connections with Tiffany Rice, Tuesdays on Spooky TV at 8 p.m. So you'll be able to just watch it on the same place where you can watch Spooky TV tonight. We're, uh, We're getting pretty technologically sound here. I actually up, I updated all the archives now to, to iTunes and all the podcast feeds, and I'm working on building the new archive. We were talking about that today, Chris and I. So you don't have to worry, Matt. We don't. I won't be saying to you anymore, like, hey, did you update that archive yet? Because I'm going to know how to do this one. Excellent. It's, it's pretty, Excellent. pretty good. So it's, it's coming along. So uh, why don't we take a look at some of the news, and I don't have the Week and Weird music. That's the only thing I did not have. So I'll get that from you at a later date. But uh, <laughs> I do have some interesting stories here that I, I want to go over. Uh, this one we'll just go over real quick. This is uh, from Mansfield, Ohio. The annual cleanup of the former Ohio prison where the Shawshank Redemption was filmed has drawn dozens of people, including some, in search of paranormal activity. The News Journal in Mansfield reports nearly 85 people from Ohio and neighboring states met at the former Ohio State Reformatory over the weekend. They swept floors and picked up broken concrete and paint chips. Some were keeping an eye out for signs that would bolster the building's reputation as a haunted prison. Ghost Hunt Manager Scott Sukel said the group was able to clean most of the building because there was more help than anticipated. Uh, volunteer Joe James says the benefit of helping out included the chance to see prison artifacts and help open new tour areas. But here's an idea. you know, this is, this is the paranormal community giving back to some degree. I mean, it's a matter of... It might be their only chance to get in there and look for, mm. for ghosts, so they might as well do it because it's a chance to get in there. But also, you know, we've talked about it a lot on the show, especially with the we do, we've done episodes on cemetery awareness. Uh, we've done things about you know obeying the laws and, and obeying historical regulations when doing investigations. So the fact that people are willing to get in there and get their hands dirty for the sake of maybe catching a glimpse of a ghost or maybe I'm sure like some of these guys were you know peeling paint off the walls with their their tape recorders tucked into their hats and trying to see if they can pick up any EVPs or anything because of course if you're going to be in there and doing all that kind of stuff Matt Moniz what's going to happen 
Well, you're going to, number one, you're going to make it so that you're not going to get anybody else back in if you're, if you're doing vandalism. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's not. It's always a good idea to do the right thing. I mean, especially if you want to go back again. Uh, but also, wouldn't just the act of being there, cleaning up, scraping the paint, making some of these renovations to the place, wouldn't that help stir up some of the activity too? It it could, yeah, it, it could. Well, you're you're talking about going in there, legitimately removing paint and helping out. But, oh yeah, yeah, that's what I mean. Like this, that's what this was. It's part of the cleanup. Uh, I mean, maybe this is something that could catch fire and happen in other places too. I'm sure there's a number of you know reportedly haunted sites that could use a, an extra helping hand. Imagine what they could do to the uh, not, not that they'll let anybody in there, but imagine what they could do to the New Bedford Armory. If, uh, if they were able to get a team of people together to clean up and in the hopes that, hey, maybe maybe we'll catch something while we're in there. So uh, here's – now, last week we talked about the woolly mammoth. and <laughs> yeah, You and mean the bear? The bear. The bear yeah. with the fish in his mouth. This may come as a shock and as a surprise, but it's actually been debunked. No. That footage. Uh, basically, what happened was uh, it was it was actually uploaded to YouTube. The video clip of the background of the river was actually uploaded to YouTube by a documentary filmmaker who's making a, a continuing YouTube series uh, about a path that his uncle made or his grandfather made on a, on a trip that he made during his life. So he just had this shot up there of the rolling river with his narration over it and everything, and somebody basically CGI'd this thing into that footage. So, and of course, uh, the, the, the gentleman involved, Michael Cohen, who we mentioned both with this story yeah. last week and with the Princess Di, you know, ghostly image video, uh, he's actually involved in this, and he's the one that had this video sent to him, which he then, he then passed that on uh, to a company, uh, and then that company is the one that put it out there, you know, to the world, and now they're trying to say, oh, you know, we got hoax too, we're just, uh, you know, we're just innocent parties in this, we, we didn't know that it was a hoax. Sure. Don't I recall mentioning something about, you know, it, there was a impropriety with the people that brought it forward in the first place? Yeah, well, this Michael Cohen, he's uh, he's actually been accused of hoaxes before, yeah. uh, including uh, a dead alien found in Russia and uh, aliens captured in Australia. Uh, so there's there's been numerous things that he's been involved with in the past that have been yeah. debunked. So, yeah, yeah. Eh, but it's fun. It's fun to... Th- it's fun to consider the possibility that uh, a woolly mammoth could still exist. If anything, you know, it gives you a good reason to go on Cryptomundo for the day and kind of mm. just see what people have to say and what they post. That's that's always a good reason. I know Matt Costa goes on Cryptomundo every day. Every other day. Every other. Yeah, but the difference is he's using it as a dating profile. <laughs> nice. He gotcha. Zing. All right, this comes from the Daily Times. Uh, this was uh, actually sent to me by our content director, Chris Balzano. Uh, ghost of Belle vanishes after portrait put back. As ghosts go, she was a rather cultured specimen. The pale Edwardian figure made frequent visits to the mansion home of Alan Smith, always accompanied by the music of Chopin, according to the startled souls who bore witness. Her interest in the house was a mystery until the discovery of a long-lost painting that appeared to feature the very same person sitting at a piano. When the portrait was returned to Heel House's drawing room, the sighting stopped. Mr. Smith was so fascinated, he decided to investigate the history of the painting and uncovered the sad story of the uninvited guest. He inv- identified the woman as a Mrs. Bell, one of the 15-bedroom mansion's previous occupants, who had been bankrupted and forced to sell all of her possessions, including her beloved portrait, shortly before her death in the early 1900s. So there we go. That, that would have been a good story to put in Haunted Objects, Stories of Ghosts in Your Shelf, had it broken before we passed in the manuscript. But 
I mean, this is something, Moniz, that I'm sure you've had dealings with in some of your cases over the years where sometimes there is a spirit attached to an object. Yes. And by putting that object, you know, by putting right where it should be, then you put right with the spirit. Like in some cases out of the house. <laughs> yeah, that might be the case. Uh, that might be the best way to go in some regards. But well, that's usually one of the first questions I ask after, you know, dealing with other uh, basic information yeah, first. Yeah, when, when somebody's coming you, at you and saying, I'm having this issue. Yeah, have you bought anything new recently to the house that's, you know, and what? where did you get it and, and stuff like or that? Or have you taken anything from the house recently? Yeah. So I think that, um, you know, in this case, you know, we obviously have a spirit that was attached to this painting or, or had a reason to want this painting to come back. Uh, sometimes they're not as nice and gentle as this spirit apparently was. You know, sometimes they actually get quite forceful about what they want to have come in or leave the dwelling. And if you ever watch, of course, many people out there know what I'm talking about by watching Haunted Collector with John Zaffis, or they've seen some of these other specials about haunted objects. Uh, it can get pretty downright nasty. Hmm. So, And, of course, one of the nastiest cases that you'll hear about in the paranormal is the Amityville Horror case, and we're going to be talking about that with Ryan Katzenbach. Uh, Makos, I'm, I know that you haven't had a chance to see this movie. No. But I know that uh, you were here when we talked about it last time. And uh, if you remember, we talked about how it was going to be a, a pretty voluminous project with all the research Ryan had done. This is actually part one of three parts. It's going to be like a six-hour documentary. Trilogy. Yes, I a like trilogy. That. And uh, just some of the information that Ryan's been able to come up with, some of it isn't even in the film. You know, he discovered it afterwards or it didn't make it into the film. So if you go to the website... Uh, which is AmityvilleFilm.com, and it's linked up right on the slide at SpookySouthCoast.com as well. You can go to the website, and you can read some of these articles that he's written and some of these interviews that have been conducted after the filming was all done. And it's just amazing, like, just the reams of information that he's been able to come up with when, for years, you know, this case was something that people kind of just accepted at face value and didn't bother to dig any further. So some of these stories, to me, are... You know, the first time I'm hearing them, you know, really in-depth Amityville scholars will debate a lot of this stuff. And, of course, it's based on the book The Night the DeFeos Died, which was written by Rick Osuna, which we've talked about Rick here in the past. There's been a lot of controversy with his work, uh, especially in terms of Ronnie DeFeo, who is, you know, still alive and still incarcerated. Uh, and he tends to disagree with a lot of what Rick Osuna writes about. And there was a lot of legal battles and all kinds of problems. And uh, one of the people that is involved in, in that regard with, uh, with Ronnie is Jackie Barrett, the psychic who has basically become Ronnie's confidant and helped him in prison and has uh, been working with him on some projects. Uh, they wrote a book together and they've done a, a television special together. And she's actually going to be on the show next week. With uh, Chris Balzano, I, I have to ask you, Matt Costa, do, do you know if you'll be here next week? Um, I should be. Okay. At the beginning? Maybe. Okay. Well, if... Uh, if Possibly. If Spooky South Coast doesn't come on the airways by 10.15, just keep checking back. Because it's whenever they cut Matt Costa right. loose, he'll be here. And uh, Chris Balzano will host. Jackie Barrett will be the guest. And uh, they'll, it'll basically be, to some degree, there'll be some rebuttal of what we talk about tonight. Because I know that Jackie has had some issues in the past with things that we've discussed with Ryan and things that we've discussed with Christopher Quartino, formerly known as Christopher Lutz. So that makes for some good debate. Eventually, we have to get all of these interested parties on the show at the same time. Ooh. I know. That's very combustible. <laughs> 
but I actually I sent a message to, to Chris Quarantino earlier today and said, you know, we're going to be talking with Ryan tonight. If you want to chime in, feel free. Let me know. So maybe he'll get in touch with us at some point during the night. Uh, but uh, we'll be talking Amityville for the rest of the night. But before we do that, we do want to just take a quick moment and uh, give best wishes to Grant Wilson in future uh, endeavors with yep. with uh, his announcement this week that he's leaving Ghost Hunters. And, of course, that's not a surprise. We we all yep. thought that's what it was. And, you know, we, we just can't say that because people are like, oh, you guys know. You guys know them and you're privy to stuff. And so if we had said it, people would have ran with it. And then it would have been our fault. So... Best of luck to him, and I'm sure he's going to be way more involved than people are thinking he's going to be. You know, he just won't be going through the rigorous filming schedule anymore, which you don't blame him. You know, it takes a toll on somebody, and somebody's got outside interests, and, you know, you can kind of tell. Yeah, you just got family. You just got kids and stuff like that, yeah. You, you can kind of tell when, when the wear of the road has taken its toll on somebody over the years, and it's just, so you know, eight years is a long time. It's a long time to be doing anything. I mean, we've been doing this show for seven years, and oh, I'm I'm tired of it. I'm <laughs> bored. With it. I was thinking maybe next week we'd switch the format, and I think uh, uh, we'll do a cooking show over the radio. Paranormal cooking? Or no, no, just just oh. cooking, just straight cooking. We'll just do cooking over the radio. We'll like show people over the radio what sure. we're doing. Should work out great. How come nobody's ever thought of that before? All right, well, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back on the other side, we'll be joined by Ryan Katzenbach, who will talk with us about his film Shattered Hopes, the true story of the Amityville murders, part one, from horror to horror, from horror to homicide. So stay tuned. We'll be right back in just a few minutes. You're going you're gonna to have me do this by my Yeah. All right, we'll be right back in just a few minutes here on Spooky South Coast. Turn on all your lights, lock the doors, and pull down the shades. Spooky South Coast is back. All right, welcome back to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here, along with the silent assassin Matt Costa, back where he belongs in his chair behind the board. And science advisor Matt Moniz is driving the uh, the Spooky TV video tonight. He's directing, and he's running the chat room. It's uh, something new that we've been doing the last couple weeks, and it seems to be working out pretty well. Yep. And just remember, you know, if any questions pop up in the chat room, just shout them out. Don't be afraid. Well, it all involves beer. Well, yeah, maybe we should save all that stuff for tonight. Yeah. But uh, that, that's the way to go. If you want to come in and interact with us during the show, Spooky TV on SpookySouthCoast.com. Just go to the live show uh, header and then go to the drop-down box and select the Spooky TV with live chat option. And that will allow you to chat in the chat room and interact with us during the course of the show. And... I just know, you know, this is going to be one of those shows where the chat room will get popping. The phone lines will be buzzing. People will have questions. If you want to get involved with the discussion during the course of the night and you want to call in, the numbers are 508-996-0500, 1-877-996-1420. And you can also email us, SpookyCrew at SpookySouthCoast.com as well. Those are the ways to get involved because... This is just going to be uh, another exciting discussion with our guest, Ryan Katzenbach. He's a filmmaker, and his film is entitled Shattered Hopes, the true story of the Amityville murders. And we're going to be talking tonight about part one from Horror to Homicide, which is the first disc of three. And he is joining us on the line. Good evening, Ryan. How are you doing? I am good, Tim. Thanks for having us on tonight. Uh, we're always happy to have you come back. Thanks for joining us. I, I have to say, I watched the film yesterday, and... 
you were promising that uh, it was going to blow people away, and, and you certainly delivered. Well, thanks. Thank you. I'm glad. I'm I'm glad that you enjoyed it. Now, this is, of course, as we mentioned, the first of three. When you were putting the film together, you know, it seemed obvious at some point to you that there was just going to be more information than you could fit into a regular two-hour documentary. Well, exactly, exactly. What, what started to happen in the process was um, one of my friends who's a, a veteran uh, filmmaker, a, a producer by the name of Bernie Safronsky, and he's done, uh, he had a career that spent about... 30 years or so in TV movies of the week, and he made a lot of stuff for the various networks. And uh, we were in a discussion, this was right from the onset of the project, and, and he told me, he said, you know, you're worried about the amount of content that you have. He said, you know, they just did a, a two-part, two-hour per, you know, per part uh, documentary on HBO on Hurricane Katrina, which I believe was a, the, the Spike Lee production. And he said, you know, he goes, I feel like given the content that you've got, you shouldn't be afraid and you shouldn't limit yourself with time, you know, and don't worry about how long it's going to be. If it's good stuff, if it's interesting material, people will follow along and people will be interested. And so we kind of set out from the beginning with the idea that it would be two two-hour installments. And then it just kept expanding from there and it just kept getting bigger and you know, one one more person would come out of the woodwork that had something really intriguing to say about the case, and and then there would be someone else, and uh, we would try to plan these trips to New York so that we could uh, fly back and do two or three interviews at one time, and and after a number of trips and after a number of of trips to collect documents and to to meet with these people, you know, it was just becoming it was. It was almost like, what do you do with all of this content? You can't mm -hmm. leave this stuff out. This stuff is extremely relevant to the case. And so we just decided to get brave. And we said, you know, I don't know if anybody's ever done a, a six-hour documentary in three different installments like this, but, but we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna do it. You know? And I think what, what ended up happening was each segment of the film has almost in a weird way become its own freestanding film, that you could almost view separately and get the story out of. Obviously, when they're all viewed together, you know, that's when you get the whole story complete. And when you are putting together a film of this magnitude and you do have all that information, like you said, you don't want any of it to have to fall by the wayside, but you probably also found just some interesting little tidbits uh, that, you know, might not make it into the film, but there's certainly uh, on the website, Amityville amityvillefilm.com you have a lot of uh, interesting information that's kind of you know rides alongside saddle with the film right right exactly and that's kind of obviously we have so much stuff that goes into the film that the website right now is kind of scant you know and, and we add a little bit to it here and there and what have you once the film is fully out then what what i would like to see happen with it is i would like to see you know uh, a document archive, a library where people can go pull the PDF of these different documents oh, wow. that we've obtained. Um, obviously, you know, there's a, a possibility in this day and age, given the web, you know, where we can have outtakes and clips and a lot of material. And, uh, and of course, we've been in discussion from the beginning that eventually this thing would end up in a box set with some additional discs that would contain, like you said, those tidbits that were relevant to the story are interesting, but yet they interrupted the pacing or the flow of the project, mm -hmm. so they got dropped. And there's, there's been a lot of those, you know. Interesting, but does it really advance the story along and move the story? Not really. But 
for the diehard enthusiasts out there that are that have followed the case for years and what have you. I think there's a lot of material they will enjoy seeing. Well, one of the things that uh, is one of the extras here on the first disc is you have the history of 112 Ocean Avenue. And before we even launch into discussing the DeFeo family and, and just what went on when they lived in that house, that house had kind of an interesting uh, beginning. It did. It really did. You know, the, the, you're talking about the original house that was on the site, mm-hmm. you know, and there's been a lot of speculation as to, you know, why that was moved. And one of the things I will, I will note, too, is that, you know, there's a lot of info on Amityville that's available on the web, and you can find that in a lot of different sources. So one of the things we were trying to figure out with that segment on the history of 112 was kind of where does it fit? And we had it sandwiched at one point uh, in a spot where it was a nice diversion, but you were fully entrenched in the DeFeo story at this point. And it seemed like all of a sudden we stopped telling that story and we jump over here to tell the story about the house. Mm-hmm. And then you come back to the DeFeos. And it just, I, I, every time I watched that rough cut, it was like, this part just annoys me. So we talked about moving it. You know, where can we put it? And ultimately we decided that because there is so much you know, info available out there that if people really want to know about the history of 112 Ocean Avenue, especially if they're an enthusiast of the story, they already probably know that. And if they don't, they can easily find it, you know. So, but yes, the, the property did have a very interesting, you know, history. But, uh, you know, there's been speculation that the house was moved because maybe the Moynihan's thought that there was some kind of problem with the house, so they moved it. As you saw in that in that bonus feature segment, it was really more than anything about the fact that their four kids were were you know getting bigger. They were in their teenage years, I believe, when you know around the time that they began to think about building the new house. They were obviously avid boat enthusiasts, as you saw in the in the the outtake, you know. And I just I think that simply they didn't want to give up the property. Yeah, that's that's know? a good so, spot. You don't want to give up a spot like that. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And, it, and thus, you know, you, you had a house that really didn't fit on the property very well that they made work, you know, by simply turning it sideways. And, and I think that really, at the end of the day, I think their, their, their you know, interest in boating and the fact that they had a, a, a yacht named after their daughter, Eileen, that was really what compelled them to stay there. And, uh, and I think the other thing that, that's really clear is that they were very proud of this house. You know, this was a home that they entertained in. If you go through the New York Times, through some of the various, you know, social columns, you see that that the Moynihan's entertained, and they were obviously very well-to-do people, you know. And we know that John Moynihan died in the house, and, and don't quote me on this, but I think it was 1930 or 1931. I can't remember the, the exact year. It's not in front of me at this moment. You know, and... and uh, Catherine, his wife, continued to live in the house until her death in, in 1960. You know, so this, this house was literally in the family for like 32, 33 years. And obviously, if there was some kind of problem going on with the house, I don't think you would keep it that long. I think you would probably say, whoa, we're out of here. You know, especially if any of the things that were happening to them that the Lutzes later described during their, their 28-day tenure. See, and it's interesting to me because, you know, there are those legends and rumors that have popped up around the Amityville property, uh, around the 112 Ocean Avenue property of there being, you know, a Native American chief being buried on the property, about there being rituals that took place on the property, and that it basically being a a dark spot. And uh, I'm sure in in any of your research, nothing came up in that regard? 
You know, we, we've never found anything. One of the things that we've always kind of tried to pursue to some degree was the Indians. Mm-hmm. And there's really just not a lot of information that is really available, you know, from back in the, the 1500s, the 1600s, you know, what have you, as to who was there. And I know that there's been, there's been some, some uh, debate and I think, if I if I remember correctly, some litigation between the Indians and certain communities or villages, wherein they've wanted certain property. You know, I again, I haven't really gone really, really deep into this subject mm-hmm. because I just always kind of felt that it was nonsense. But I think the Indians would have really very much liked to have proven that they that they that their tribes were on that property back then, because it would have given or it would have given some real credence to them and to their position. And I don't I just don't think that anything has ever really been uncovered that is concrete, you know, that proves that it was or it wasn't. And the one thing that I will say that goes against them burying anyone, you know, supposedly the site, obviously, as we've heard through the years, was a site where they left their dead, dying, sick, crazy, uh, you know, tribal members to die. Mm-hmm. Well, number one, the Indians, the Indians took very good care of their own, and I don't think that that's completely inconsistent with what typically happens in any tribe when you, when you explore that. And the second thing is, is I don't think they would bury him there because of how low and how shallow the water table is, you know. And what I'm saying here is nothing that hasn't been said in probably five other documentaries on the on the subject, you know. So I just I know that I know Holzer spent a great deal of time, Hans Holzer spent a great deal of time, you know, when this happened and investigating the site and all that stuff. And he came up with, with some research that supposedly later disappeared from the record, you know, which I don't think that's inconsistent with anything that I've seen about this case so far. So who can really say what did or did not go on before anything was built on that property? But what is pretty clear to me in talking to, to some of the various parties present, you know, what is very clear to me is that Nothing since has happened bad in that house. And, you know, you had Brian Wilson, who spent 13 years there and probably put in several hundred thousand dollars of his own money investing it into the property and improving things like building a new foundation into the boathouse. And and he made structural modifications inside, like knocking the wall out between the master bedroom and what would have been the TV room when the DeFeos owned it. So, you know, I don't think you put a lot of money into something if you feel very uncomfortable there for any reason. Sure. You know? And going in, you know, going through the history of of the house is is one thing, but also something that your film does. Normally, when you see a documentary about the Amityville case and about the DeFeo murders, they always tend to start. Oh, I don't know, the day of the murders. <laughs> Nobody's ever right. really explored their lives before they got to that day. And in this film, you do a great job of picking up from the minute you know uh, Louise and and Big Ronnie met and through their courtship and and just the strange dynamic that happened with their family right from the outset. Right, and and there is, you know, it, it's very hard, you know. Obviously, the origins the origins of this family is very hard to track. You know, you have a family uh, that today there are some obviously some family members that are still alive, and they're very guarded and they're very very protective of that because, as Roger Nonowitz told me when when I first approached him, he said, you know. 
I've been approached by, I think his number was 12 or 13 producers over a 35, 36, 37-year period. And he told me, he said, and every one of them has come to me and said, I want to tell the truth. We're going to tell the truth. And in the end, none of them have. Mm-hmm. And he said he was very guarded of the story, and it took some talking before he became convinced, I think, that he was going to put his trust in us. You know, and, and that goes back to him to to kind of the whole, um, one of the reasons why we decided that this project would be so linked was because I didn't want to spend time developing relationships with people and getting people to talk and then simply say to them after the film came out, well, we were concerned about our running time, so we left the bulk of your interview on the cutting room floor and no one yeah. will ever see it. I didn't feel that that was fair to them. You know, and and it's not fair to the it. it's not fair to the story either because you don't want to you know as as I'm sure many other producers and directors and editors have done you don't want to cut out the part where they're talking about you know what a good dad Ronnie was on the to the to the football team and you know the things that he did for the football players and and being part of the organization and helping them do all the fundraising events you know you don't want to cut all that out and just portray the monstrous side of him which is what all these exactly. other documentaries have done in the past exactly because you know what big Ronnie DeFeo big Ronnie DeFeo did have his good sides, you know, and whether he had an ulterior motive or an alter ego, so to speak, you know, whatever the case, you know, there are people who had a lot of good things to say about him, you know, that he did do those things with the football team, that he did host a lot of parties at their house, you know, in the summer, you know, the the various pool parties for members of the football team. You know, he was, he did portray himself to be a very upstanding you know, very generous man. And that's, you know, you get a lot of controversy as a result of that, you know, because there are people that say, well, that was Big Ryan DeFeo, and he was never abusive to, you know, to his family. And then you have people who argue that he was abusive to the family. And we feel, obviously, in our position, that there is enough on the record that, that, that shows that I think that I think the most interesting part that we discovered about the DeFeos was what a closed system they were. Mm-hmm. You know, they they really did project one image to one set of friends and another image to yet another set of friends. And then you had Butch's friends, you know, some of his friends, who saw some of the insanity that went on in the house. So I guess it kind of depended upon the circle of friends that you were in was based on what you, what you got to see. So it's very hard to say what did or did not happen in the DeFeo house because everybody had a different perspective on it, you know. And unless you were there 24-7 every day of the week and you were a fly on the wall watching went on, we can only speculate as to a lot of these things, but they seem to be true. Sure. Well, there's a question in the uh, chat room that asks, basically, does it matter what good he did if he turned out to be a monster? And, and the point of example is, what good did Hitler's uh, good deeds do when he eventually turned out the way he did? Well, I think the answer to that question, I think the answer to that question, it's a very good question. The answer to that question is you have to understand the person and you have to understand the psychology of why that person was the way they were. And I don't think that Big Ronnie was this horrible monster because of the fact that he was born that way or the fact that he he just came to be that way. There were a lot of, I think as you guys saw in the film, there were a lot of, of mitigating circumstances. Here was a man who, as pointed out, in an Italian family, and any Italian will tell you this, 
very important for the for the man to be the dominating figure, you know, in his family, the patriarch. And everything that his wife and children have is attributed to his hard work. And in this particular case, you know, you had Briganti, who was Louise DeFeo's father in here, and he provided them with their house. He provided them with their cars. He provided Big Ronnie with his job. And I think that that would be very hard on any, on any you know, self-respecting man, especially an Italian, and I'm, and I'm not trying to be stereotypical or anything like that when I say that, but I think that that really probably warped his view of himself and made him very insecure, and that if he had any tendencies towards violence, you know, that that's what caused that stuff to rise to the surface. And I, I don't know if that's a good answer to that question or not, but I, but I do think you have to understand the whole person yes. you know, before you can judge him and say he was good or he was bad. You're trying to say he's trying to overcompensate for uh, not doing what he should for his well, family? Either, either that or it could be the pressure too, right, Ryan? It could have been the, just the pressure of having to deal with – I mean, it wasn't like he was treated with a whole lot of respect from Mike Berganti either. Well, that's kind of the impression that you get, you mm-hmm. know, is that, is that, you know, I think Mike knew what was going on in the house, and, and Mike, you know, there was not much Mike could do about the situation. So I'm sure that Mike took it out on, on Big Ronnie any way that he probably could. Not realizing, you know, of course, he was probably making it worse. He was making it worse, sure, sure. I mean, I think the whole, the whole picture that I think we project in Part 1 is that, this was really a pressure cooker, and it's really not surprising that what happened happened, okay, because it was going to come to a head. It's like my, my forensic psychologist, Dr. Hickey and Dr. Puckett, said in the film, or maybe they didn't say it in the film, and, and they, they say it somewhere else in one of the other parts. You know, eventually, a situation like this, no matter the, the outcome, nine out of ten times, when you have this kind of insanity and this kind of ongoing domestic abuse, for a prolonged period of time, eventually it is going to end in some horrific and violent act. You know, and I remember that Dr. Hickey had, had given me one example after another of these kind of abuse cases where it ended in murder. You know, so it, they were not heading in a good direction for a very long time. We are coming up. Uh, we have about three minutes left before uh, the end of this first hour. And in the second hour, I want to talk some more about Big Ronnie as a person. I want to talk some more about some of the strange quirks in his personality, uh, you know, in addition to you know, the abusive side that, that's portrayed in the film. You also portray a quirky side that I want to explore a little bit more. And uh, we'll also talk about the more about the family dynamic, and we'll talk about how that, of course, might have led to these murders. And there's just so much information. One of the things that I don't think we touched upon much at all in your last visit, of course, is this character of Geraldine. So we're going to talk about that uh, coming up in the second hour as well. Awesome. You got it. All right. So uh, stay tuned, folks. We're going to take a break for the news in just a couple minutes. Uh, but when we come back, we will talk more about Amityville. If you have questions and you want to get involved in the discussion, feel free at any time to give us a call, 508 996 500 one 1420 Those numbers are also up on SpookySouthCoast.com as well if you need to get them during the show. You can also jump in the chat room under Spooky TV on the website as well. Or you could email us, SpookyCrew at SpookySouthCoast.com. And another great way to get a hold of us, of course, is on Twitter, at SpookySC. So if you have a question and you want to tweet it, just uh, you know mention us in the post, at SpookySC, and we will ask the question on the air. Because I'm sure that there's a, a number of questions that people have out there, because we, like I said earlier on in the show, you know we're, we're given this 
projected version of what the DeFeo household was like. And we're given uh, basically any, anything about Amityville that's on television that you've seen. You, it, it was spoon-fed to us. Yeah, and you get about eight minutes of DeFeo's yeah. and then, you know, 42 minutes of the Lusses. So that's where, you know, that you're... You're not exploring the whole story if you're just worrying worrying about the time that the Lutz has spent in there because the true story does lie in what happened with the DeFeo. So if you want to check out the website for the film during the break, just go to AmityvilleFilm.com. That's the place where you can check it out. And here it is on Spooky TV if you want to check out Shattered Hopes, the true story of the Amityville murders. Ryan, uh, I know that you're starting to ship the disc out for review purposes and everything, but is it, is it up for sale? Are the sale copies going out? Yes. Oh, yes. Yes. It is available at Amazon.com, and it is available on our website um, under the – if they go to the – obviously just the index, the welcome page, mm-hmm. and uh, they can click right on the DVD, and it will take them to our, to our online store. Excellent. How much is it? It is seventeen ninety nine, and it is it is as I said available to Amazon. I did see where a day or so ago Amazon ran out of stock on them, and uh, there are more orders. There are more copies in route to them in the pipeline right now. So you can order with confidence that you will get it from Amazon. But I think they're probably going to be a few days before it's back in stock again. Hey, it's a good thing when the demand is uh, <laughs> so great that well, you can't keep it in it's stock. Been, been really, really good. It's been very well received so far, and uh, you know we're we're very pleased with with what's going on and what's happening, and we're looking forward to getting part two out. Excellent. All right. Well, we'll be back in just a few minutes. We'll talk more about the DeFeos. We'll talk a bit about the Lutzes. We'll talk more about Amityville with our guest tonight, Ryan Katzenbach. Again, the film is Shattered Hopes, the true story of the Amityville murders. You can check out the website amityvillefilm.com. It's also linked up on SpookySouthCoast.com as well. If you just click the slide for tonight's show, you'll be taken right to the website for the film where you can purchase it and find out more. So we'll be right back following the news with more here on Spooky South Coast. What I am about to say will shake the very foundation of every medical precept you hold dear. We have entered the realm Turn on all your lights, lock the doors, and pull down the shades. Spooky South Coast is back. All right, welcome back. Hour number two of the show. Tim Weisberg here, along with the silent assassin Matt Costa and science advisor Matt Moniz. And Matt, the chat room is jumping and buzzing on Spooky TV. Uh, Yeah, it seems to be moving along pretty good. Definitely pretty good. Usual suspects in there. Absolutely. Well, we say hi to everybody in the chat room, and if you're not involved with it, just go to SpookySouthCoast.com, click on the live show heading, and in the drop-down box, select Spooky TV with live chat, and that's that's the place to go and hang out. Every Saturday night during the show, every Tuesday night during Spirit Connections with Tiffany Rice, that's where you can interact and get involved with both programs. So we're excited tonight because we're talking about Amityville, one of our favorite topics to cover, and... Next week, we'll also be talking some more Amityville. Uh, we're going to be at our Legend Trips event, Dead of Winter, 2012, the Lizzie Borden Bed and Breakfast. Myself and Matt Moniz. Matt Koss is going to be here. Uh, as we said, the start time may be adjusted a little bit, depending on his work schedule. So just stay tuned. And uh, also, our content director and good friend and my hero, Chris Balzano, will be here as the host. Well, he won't be here because he lives far away, but we're going to bring him in over Skype, and he's going to be hosting the show. And the guest will be Jackie Barrett, 
the psychic who we've had on before, talking about the Amityville case. And, of course, she is uh, working with Ronnie DeFeo on some projects, and, and they've formed a close friendship between the two of them, and she's gotten Ronnie's side of things. So there'll probably be some degree of rebuttal, Ryan, about what we're talking about tonight <laughs> with Jackie next <laughs> I would, week. I would fully expect. I was, I was saying at the beginning of the show that... Uh, Someday, I would love to have the opportunity to get yourself, Jackie, and Christopher Quarantino all on at the same time, but uh, <laughs> I don't know how that would work. It would, it would probably be a, uh, probably a pretty interesting show. <laughs> there be, there, I'm sure somewhere in that mix, there's probably, you know, restraining orders and <laughs> things like that. Well, you know, actually, I've, I've talked to Jackie, and... Uh, and I and I respect Jackie's work, and uh, I don't I don't necessarily agree with with the findings, and I don't think that she agrees with mine, you know. And uh, but I mean, there's there's a mutual respect. There's no there's no um, I wouldn't call there there's no animosity sure. or anything there. We just like to feel the flames of controversy wherever we can. Sure, sure. Hey, you know what? <laughs> it gets people it gets people listening. It gets people watching, and that's that's you know that's what it's all about. And, well, one of the things that we were talking about uh, that we alluded to a little bit in the first hour was this other side of Big Ronnie DeFeo's personality. And this was something that I'd never really heard of uh, until the film. I mean, I'd, I'd heard, you know, that he was a religious man, and I've heard that he had some religious fervor to a, to a degree. Uh, but in the film, you talk about how uh, apparently he felt that he had a direct line to St. Joseph and that he could talk to him directly and that at some point... You know, he also believed that he talked to God, and this was something that he spoke to other people about. Oh yeah, oh yeah, he was he was very vocal about that. I was rather I was rather surprised at in in hearing the stories and hearing the accounts. I was very surprised as to just how kind of out there some of his claims were. Mm -hmm. You know, and um, and I know you had mentioned Geraldine earlier, and Geraldine was one who had told us a lot of these stories. And then when you begin to hear them from the people who really didn't, you know, who really didn't know them very well and were part of, in some cases, their daily lives, you know, you, you, it, it was amazing to me how much it matched up perfectly, you know, detail for detail. And the, the very first thing that, that I found interesting was the, the story about the origin of how Big Ronnie became religious, because over the years we've been spoon-fed a completely different version of events. You know, the the, ver the official version states that uh, you know that in the middle of a of a horrific argument that uh, wherein Big Ronnie was being physically abusive to Louise and possibly the kids, the kids supposedly ran up and told Butch, you know, mommy's killing dad or daddy's killing mommy. Uh, you need to do something. So Butch grabs his, his twenty two or shotgun or whatever it was off the wall and goes down and tells his father, you know, I can't take any more of this. You're dead. And pulls the trigger on this loaded gun, and the gun jams and doesn't go off. So he pulls the trigger a second time, and the, and the gun jams. And supposedly, this is how Big Ronnie suddenly found religion. He thought that this was a miracle that he was chosen, that he had been saved from certain death at the hands of his son, and that was when he found religion. But the reality of it is, is it's far less dramatic than that, in that, you know, he had gone up to, uh, to St. Joseph, uh, Joseph's Oratory in Montreal, Canada, and had visited, and, and later recounted to the Gangitanos that, that, you know, while he was there, something came over him and he felt something, 
you know, that he had never felt before. And upon returning home, he, he read about Brother Andre, who, who actually started building the oratory, and he became friends at that point with uh, Father Roger Garreau, who was the guy that we discussed in our film that was, you know, he developed a strong friendship with, and they went back multiple times, and, and Garreau even came down to their house. So I think that the that the origin of this gun being put to to Big Ronnie's head and Butch pulling the trigger, I think there's just a lot of bravado to that story, and I don't think there's any any basis for it at all. And the story seems to have been conjured when Butch was trying to make a run at insanity during the trial. This was a a story that he had told one of the one of the uh, psychologists, I believe, that it may, may have been Harold Zolan, and uh, and so. Through talking to the people who knew the DeFeos and knew them well, you know, you, you kind of start to knock the the edges of the of the the uh, I guess I, I want to say the legend. You start to reveal that that there was pieces of truth within it, but now the real truth begins to emerge, and it wasn't nearly as fantastic as what it's painted to be. See, and the fact that if the true version of his religious experience happened outside of the house uh see that matters to me as a paranormal guy because i'm looking at this house and we alluded to it uh, earlier in the program i'm looking at this location as being similar to what we deal with here in the lizzie borden bed and breakfast in fall river massachusetts where i i think that there's something negative over that land that's there that predated the bordens and i always wondered if there was something that well the history Proves that there's something going on at the Bordens because look what happened with Ledrick Borden's uh, wife, uh, which was Andrew's aunt. She sl- she drowned her three children and slit her own throat well, right two, there on the two front. of the three. Well, she tried. And she tried she to kill all the three. three. Yeah, and and the fact that there was that dark history there, and that even the Native Americans didn't want anything to do right. with that that area before that. You know, I wonder if that's the kind of thing with the Amityville house too, and then. That led me to believe when I'm watching the film about this, you know, religious fervor that he's actually speaking to these religious icons that maybe it's not. Maybe it's those forces within the house manipulating him no differently than Butch claimed, you know, a figure handed him the shotgun or George Lutz claimed that, you know, something was telling him to kill his family. Right. Well, you know, Alex Holzer and I have talked at length about, you know, and she presents it in the film. She kind of. She kind of comes in to present kind of really the only paranormal aspect in part three that we really delve into when she talks about her father's research and stuff like that. And she kind of strikes a nice balance between what we're saying about the Lutzes and and what she has to say about the property itself. And, you know, I don't entirely not subscribe to the idea that if there was something bad going on in the house, it could have been tied straight to the defense. Okay. Given all of the negative, you know, energy that was going on in the house at that time between them, but I, I think that whatever it was, if there was indeed something, I think that it was more of a on a case by case basis. I think it was tied more to the defeos and the negativity of what went on than it was anything else. And it wasn't about the property, and it really wasn't about the house as much as them. I guess I want to say, sort of conjuring it. But again, I'm not necessarily convinced. I, I don't believe that there ever was any supernatural influence. I think that the family themselves were, from a psychological point of view, were just hell-bent on their own destruction. 
Well, yeah, I do think that, uh, you know, there's anytime that somebody's claiming, you know, making these kind of claims, uh, I always tend to wonder if it's the the darker side that's trying to manipulate them. And this family right. was definitely ripe for that kind of manipulation because they already had that built in dysfunction. And that's, oh, yeah. that's there, something that no doubt about that. And that's something the negative, uh, negative entities will feed on and will, will further. Um, that's uh, definitely one of the cases. Now you mentioned Geraldine and we, we mentioned her before, and I think we should kind of tell people who she was because this to me was, is one of the most controversial aspects of it. And I want to find out exactly what the process has been between yourself and Rick Asuna, who wrote the night the DeFeos died about, you know, it's been verified then that Geraldine DeFeo actually was married to, to Butch DeFeo. Well, there's no verification that okay. we can find in terms of a, a marriage license or in terms of you know, anything that puts her right there. But the thing about Geraldine that is, that is well, to back up and to give you the, the background, you know, Geraldine came forward about uh, 11 years ago, 12 years ago, when Rick Osuna was doing, he was working as a producer on a History Channel documentary on the History's Mysteries you know, segments that were produced on Amityville. And at that time, she came forward because Butch had coerced her and told her, you know, that uh, he was under the understanding that Rick Osuna had the crime scene photos. And up until this point, no one had obtained the crime scene photos. They were very scant. They were very few and far between. They were very hard to get. And Rick had managed to get the full set of them. And Butch DeFeo became very upset because there were certain photos. There, was a, there is a photo in existence of Louise DeFeo after she's been turned over in the bed and photographed that her nightgown is hiked up over her waistline. And Butch was furious. He, he told Jerry, you get a hold of Rick Osuna. You tell him if he uses that photo or they use that photo, which obviously they wouldn't. You know, I'm going to sue, blah, 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 blah. And... So that's when Jerry called Rick. She had done a couple of other things to try and, and I guess, bait him into talking to her or whatever, but she finally called him, and she was calling him, as you saw in the film, to read him the riot act, you know. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, you, this was all a hoax, this was all a sham. And that is, of course, how Rick and Geraldine became, you know, compadres on the night of the fan stuff. And in doing, in... In listening to her testimony and her claims about having a relationship or being married to DeFeo before the murders and her claims that they, that they had a child together, you know, it's easy to dismiss it by saying, well, you know, she wasn't there. There's no proof of that. The mob later erased it in connection with the murders, which is something that we really dive into in part two of the film and something that also carries on into part three of the film. So there's a lot more info to come. But, but I think what is so compelling is you have to understand that Jerry, everyone claims now that Jerry met him in prison post-1985. Well, there are court documents, there are things in existence that prove that that's not the case at all. And we're going to discuss those in part three of the film in extensive detail. But the thing that got me was, Jerry's interview that you saw in the film was shot in March of 2006. Okay, it was it was one of the first interviews we shot after we began filming, you know, Shattered Hopes. And you have other interviews, like for instance with the Gangitanas that came along in 2008, and then you have Roger Nonowitz that was shot in the fall of 2010. And the thing that is so interesting to me about 
Geraldine's account is that when you lay it together with the Nonowitz account and you lay it together with what the Gangitanos had to say, they all match up spot on, detail for detail. You know, Jerry was the first one who had told us about this Catholic priest that was, as she said, was basically milking Big Ronnie DeFeo for money under the premise that the second coming of Christ was at hand and was going to be coming in the next decade or so, and that when Christ came back, according to Geraldine, what this priest was telling Big Ronnie, he would need resources, he would need money, you know, to do his to do his ministry around the world. And so supposedly, according to Jerry, one of the things that Big Ronnie was, uh, one of the pretenses that he was giving all this money to Father Gay Rowe for was for this event. And then Gay Rowe was stashing it, hiding it, whatever, you know, and saving it up for, for Jesus' second return. Whether that's true, we didn't include it in the film, because I have no way of proving that, and I ask a lot of questions about that, you know, and no one knew specifically whether that was true or not, you know. But the thing, as I said, that gets me is how well her details match up detail for detail for detail with the people who were there. And, of course, there are those who will say, they will stand up and scream, and they will say, well, the Pharaoh told her all that stuff. He coerced her. I don't believe, after spending a decade with this woman, that this woman could absorb that much detail and that much information based on some letters and some visitations, especially when, when given the fact that from 85 to into the 90s, into 2000, there was only a handful of visitations. You know, so I, I, I don't dismiss Geraldine's story at all. I think that Jerry is telling the truth, that she had some form of a relationship with with DeFeo, that she she knew the family in some manner, you know, and I also think that when you watch the film, I think she comes across with a, a real, she's very fluid in the film, and she doesn't stop for a moment to really think about anything like someone who would be making something up would be doing. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the things that uh, impressed me about the film, <clears throat> excuse me, and in the reenactments that are portrayed in the film, too, is that you're able to portray Ronnie Butch as being uh, a, a different character than we've seen portrayed in the past. And, uh, I mean, I can tell you, you know, I've, I've absorbed so much stuff about this case. I watched, of course, the special that was on TV, Amityville, the final chapter, and saw Ronnie speaking in his own words. I've had messages passed on to me from him directly, you know. Uh, and I've always kind of viewed him as, like, this, this bad guy. This, and I looked at him as, like, an idiot slacker type you know, drug addict, because that's what we kind of get. We get the last few days of what happened in that house. And the, right. the butch that you guys portray in the film, uh, you know, between yourself and the actor who played him, you know, it just paints a completely different story. And it, it shows him as being just a, a really troubled young man and somebody who was stuck in a situation he didn't want to be in. Well, it, it almost goes back to the question that one of your chat room people posted, you know, early in the show in the first hour. You know, how can we find good sides, or why are the good sides of Big Ronnie important if he was such a monster in the end? And again, it goes back to that kind of psychology, you know. Um, was Butch DeFeo born a, a killer, a mass murderer, uh, whatever you want to say about him? I don't think so, okay? And, and to make, you know, the comparison to Hitler, you know, when you go back, obviously I won't disagree for a second that Hitler was a monster, okay? But I understand in reading stuff about Hitler that there was a lot of issues in his childhood and a lot of issues that probably contributed to what he became. 
that doesn't justify what he did. And, and the decisions that Ronnie DeFeo made cannot be justified either. At the end of the day, Ronnie DeFeo could have simply walked away. Okay? He could have got in his car, drove off in the dead of night, and gone someplace else and started his life all over again. I'll, I'll, I'll even go you one better. I mean, if he, if he reached the point where he thought that something had to be done as drastic as he did, he kind of only really needed to, to take care of his father, and he didn't have to slaughter the rest of the family. That's exactly the point. You know, I, I mean, his decisions, I, I am sympathetic of Butch in a number of ways because I do feel that Butch was a victim in this family dynamic and in the way that things worked. But that does not mean that he's not where he belongs today. I was going to say, you're all missing the third option. He could have just put one bullet in himself. Mm. Well, and, and, that's a, and that's a viable, and that's a viable option. You know, I mean, it's, it's you know... But you cannot, to me, you cannot just simply paint this guy as this one-dimensional character, that he was a drug user, that he was rotten to the core, that he was bad. You have to ask the question, how did he get there? Mm-hmm. Okay? You had a father who was being, you know, uh, um, oh, crap, I can't think of the word. You had a father that was basically, you know, being demasculated by his, by his father-in-law. Okay, and I believe Big Ronnie was in turn doing it to his own son, you know, and compensating for the behavior that he was being subjected to. You know, that's why he gave him the cars, the money. He gave him a pot when he was 15 years old, you know. So there was obviously a lot going on here in the family dynamic that I think made Ronnie DeFeo Jr. who he ultimately became. And so that maybe this Geraldine person, you know, represented to him uh, some degree of that way to get out because it's 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 hard when you're in that kind of situation with a domineering father like that to be able to just up and go. But if you have a wife and if you have an inherited family by you know marrying that wife, then you know he maybe you he sort thought of think, you sort of think that your your parental units will sort of stand back and let you go. Exactly. Like, you should go do the right thing, son, and, and live with your new wife and her children. Right, exactly. And, and you know, that's, to me, that, that was a very interesting dynamic also that was present with Don DeFeo, okay, that she had the boyfriend in Florida, that she very, very, she was very, you know, she wanted out of the house. She wanted out of the arrangement. She was not happy with her father, you know, and... And, it, and again, it's very hard to find out a, a great deal about about Don and Butch as the older kids, or even any of the kids for that matter. You know, one of the things that I learned throughout the process to go back and comment on, a, on something we talked about earlier, about them being such a closed system, was one of the things I wanted to know from the Gangitanos and from Roger Nonowitz and from everybody else that we talked to, is I wanted to know more about the older kids. What were their personalities like? And, you know... Apparently, you know, Ronnie and Louise kept their friendships pretty specific to the adults. And I found that the Gangitanos, in a lot of cases, didn't know a lot about Butch. And one of the things that got me was they kind of indicated to me that, that Butch DeFeo was not around a whole lot was because she said that very seldom did they ever see him at the house when they were there. That very seldom, you know... He would run into them, you know, he would say hi or whatever, and he would run up to his room, and they wouldn't see him again. You know, the same with Don. She didn't know very much about Don DeFeo and what she was like. So we, we really don't, 
you know, we get we have a small image, a small picture of what the older kids were like and how they interacted with their parents, you know, other than what we get from court transcripts and, and you know, testimony from people that were, that were there that were at the trial. So it's very hard to put this together. I have a strange, maybe, maybe a kind of strange out there question to ask you, and that's, uh, you have on the website, of course, you talk about when the murders happened, and you talk a little bit about the mafia connection between uh, both the DeFeos, uh, the Brigantes, and uh, possibly with Geraldine's family as well. And right. you, you talk about how the grandfather, DeFeo, comes into the house after the murders and immediately calls the mobbed-up uncle uh, to come in and you know, kind of you know, apprise him of the situation of what went on. Right. I'm wondering, is it entirely possible that, you know, would 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 Peter DeFeo and, and Ronnie's father and would Mike Bergante have all the same information about the dynamic of the family that the neighbors would have had? You know, I I think so. As far as as far as them knowing like I'll give you a for instance of the one of the neighbors. One of the neighbors who lived like he was a doctor, he lived two doors down from them. And uh, he was on his way on the night of the discovery of the bodies. He was on his way to the train station to pick someone up, I do believe. And he passed by right at the moment that Butch was banging on the fender of the car and yelling, I'm not going back in that house again. And one of his other friends, whoever it was, whether it was Kelsky or uh, whoever, was staying there. And they were all yelling back and forth at each other. And the doctor drove by, and the police asked them at that point. He said, didn't that strike you as being kind of odd, like maybe this might be a situation that you should stop and inquire what's going on? And the neighbor said at that point, no, this is pretty much common, ordinary, commonplace, you know, events for Ocean Avenue. Someone was mm-hmm. basically always fighting and out in the front yard, and there was always this huge public display going on. So the neighbors very clearly knew that this was kind of a, a house of insanity. And I get the feeling, you know, Mike Briganti was wiretapped extensively, and there are numerous, numerous pages of those wiretapped conversations. And Mike maintained an ongoing relationship with Peter DeFeo, you know, and he talked to Pete regularly, and there was a lot of discussion about the insanity that went on in that house. And so I think that, I think that everybody in, in the circle knew, and I think that Mike and Pete DeFeo probably knew more than what anybody, any of the neighbors actually knew. Well, that leads to my next question, and this might be something, of course, you want to save for part two or three, but I'm sure it's out there in, uh, in Rick Asuna's book and in other media, but what is Geraldine's view of what happened? Does she think that Ronnie committed the murders? Jerry's view through the years has always been, you know, she, she wants to believe everything that, that he says, you know, and she has obviously but he changes what he says carried, so much. Well, yeah, she's carried the torch, you know, for this. She's the one that got Rick involved, which hence got me involved. And so I think she does have a very sympathetic view of Butch, and I think that she, you know, she has been an, an open line of communication, and she has told me numerous times, I have learned a lot of stuff about the case that I didn't know from stuff that you uncovered that, you know, so she's had some lies told to her that she's had to deal with as well. See, told, you know, told to her is what makes me think, uh, this may be out there, and it may be, and I'm sure it's probably not the first time it's been mentioned either, but is it possible that 
and of course we can get into this a little bit more, but we have mentioned it on the show in the past that, uh, you know, Big Ronnie was taken from the till at the car dealership. You know, he was taken from the mob, essentially. He was stealing mob money. Uh, is it entirely possible that maybe the family being wiped out was a mob hit? And because of her connections with with the mafia, uh, is it possible that Geraldine is kind of a, a disinformation agent who has been put into this story to claim to be his wife to kind of make people to take the heat off the mafia for the murders and dependent on Butch? Well, it's a really, really good question, and it's a really, really good angle. I don't, I do not believe, based on some of the information that I've been given and some of the the people that I've spoke to throughout the course of this, that it was in any way a mob hit. It doesn't okay. have in in my research. It doesn't have any of the earmark yeah, earmarks of being a mob hit. But if it's Number done right, one, it shouldn't have any. Well, here... that's true. But number one, the mob does not kill. They do not kill children. Okay, and that okay. was something that that one yeah. of my contacts was adamant about. You know, the mob does not kill does not kill innocent children. And I had at one point, I had the dynamic of how a hit would go down. You know, explained in detail to me. And after I had that explained to me, then it seemed even more, you know, illogical. Okay. And the way that it was explained to me was, that, number one, Big Ronnie, if Big Ronnie was embezzling from the dealership, which we believe he was, and I further believe that that's true because people like Roger Nonowitz knew about it, you know, and this was something that Louise had told Lynn, that she knew her husband was stealing from her father, you know. That would have been something, depending upon how much money it was, that would have been a real no-no in the family. And I always got the feeling from the things that I've read, like they were really at that time, right around the time of the murders, his father-in-law was really waking up as to how much was being skimmed and what was going on. So it's not impossible to say that Big Ronnie would have been hit, but it would not have been the family that would have been targeted. You know, Big Ronnie could have been easily taken out on his lunch hour. Um, I mean, the guy lived on the water, too. It wouldn't have been that hard for him to have a slip on the dock or, you know, to have an accident in the boat. Exactly. The way it was explained to me and the the words were chilling, and, you know, I've I've done a lot of reading and I've watched a lot of documentaries and tried to take in everything that I could on the mob in anticipation of this being an angle and certainly in anticipation of there being questions about this, you know, later on. But the way it was explained to me almost, uh, and I can't give up sources, obviously, but almost firsthand, okay, was that, number one, a man is never, a family man is never hit in his home, okay? The only way there would have to be a dire circumstance for why a man would be hit at his home, number one, okay, maybe he's going to testify tomorrow in court at 9 a.m. and we have no other choice, okay? It's some situation where there's a sense of urgency. But if Big Ronnie were, were to be hit at his house, the way that it would have gone down, it, as explained to me, was that the mob would bring in what are called mechanics. And we've all heard that term, I'm mm-hmm. sure, okay? And mechanic is, is a contract hitman. And those hitmen, they would, there would have been a number, they would have figured out how many they needed based on the number of people in the family. Okay, there's seven people potentially in this house. We're going to need four guys to control the situation and make it happen quickly. They would have been flown in from, say, the West Coast, from, say, Las Vegas, from Los Angeles. They would have flown into town. They would have had blueprints for the house. They would have had the details of everybody who lived in, their ha- in that house. 
They would have had their ages. They would have known everything about the comings and goings of this family and who could potentially be there. So hence, they would be prepared when they went in the front door. So once they arrive, once they gain control of the residence, the family would be tied up. They would all be rounded up, more than likely brought to one room, and they would be subdued in some manner, whether they were given chloroform or whether they were tied up or whatever the case may be. Big Ronnie would have simply been taken to the basement. He would have been taken to the garage. He would have been put in a car and driven somewhere. Probably, more than likely, he would have been taken away. Mm-hmm. And that would have been how the hit would have gone down. By the time that the family is able to call for help or get free, okay, and the cops are called, these professional mechanics would have been on a plane and heading back for the West Coast. And when the local authorities began to question and began to run around in the New Jersey and New York mob families trying to get leads and info, obviously no one would know anything about who these guys were because no one would have any type of connection to it. Well, there's also the other question about the murder weapon. The murder weapon was a family gun, correct? Mm-hmm. One of them was a thirty-five caliber uh, hunting rifle that Butch had had. Uh, he had actually purchased it from one of his friends, a guy by the name of Chuck Tewksbury, about uh, two years, I want to say, before the murders. And if I'm not mistaken, a thirty-five caliber is actually a pistol, a thirty-five caliber pistol round. It's not like a regular thirty-thirty rifle round, which is a much smaller cartridge and a lot less powder and would be a lot quieter inside a home than say a full uh, rifle round well a full, uh, that is more of a question for a question for a firearms expert which i which is I've consulted and you know throughout the project and asking a lot of questions about you know how loud would the rifle be and what have you but no, I, I believe the 35 round would be it was a pretty large shell uh well i use a firing range every weekend and I handle all kinds of guns and I, I, I can tell you the 35 if, if it's the one I'm thinking of is not actually that large as compared to other like uh, it's a it's a lever action gun if I'm not mistaken that was right, used right, and that right. use that uses like uh, that particular 35 caliber round is a pistol round or it's a long a longer pistol round but it's not like a 30 30 which is a full uh, like a uh, large caliber. Right, uh, right, right. As as I understand it, as I understand it, yes. Well, it, it's the, not a shouldered round, in other words. The bottom line is, if if this was a one at a time shooting, which is uh, you know what we're led to believe, then if it was committed solely by Ronnie DeFeo, then you've got to think that at some point, you know, somebody hears somebody else shooting, and there, I mean, there's nothing to say that that isn't the case. I mean, for all we know, you know, Louise DeFeo could have been wide awake by the, you know, woken right up by the, uh, by the shotgun blast for her husband right next to her and then just suffered the same fate. Well, that's exactly it. I, I, and I feel like she was definitely awake at the, time of the, at the time of the murders because there are pictures, there are crime scene pictures of blood spatter, and she would have had to have been up or elevated um, at some point most likely looking in the direction of the door, you know, and that was when she got it. And the blood splatter basically, you know, proves that, because if she was laying face down and never woke up, there would be no splatter. The blood would have gone straight into the, straight into the mattress. Yeah, I think that the, the face down, you know, shot while they're sleeping, face down on their stomachs, you know, that, that just portrays a creepy image. 
And I think that that's kind of what was being used by Anson and Weber and, and George Lutz uh, in their concoction of the story. And I think others who have tried to chronicle this story have kind of just fallen for that trap. Well, exactly. You know, the, the thing about it is is that there, when you really get down, when you really get into the story and you really uh, start looking at the finite details and you start really and, – and first off, I, I'm not – I'm not patting myself on the back when I say this, but we've had a great production team on this on this film, and we had a great producer named Gail Blackman who spent a lot of time in Long Island collecting documentation and collecting stuff for us. You know, there's there's a lot of stuff that I believe that we have that I don't believe anybody else has ever seen, and one of the things that you you can't say this or that happened, and, and it happened specifically unless you have all of the documents and all of the materials to be able to analyze all of them and put them all under the microscope. Mm -hmm. And one of the frustrations of this story lies in the fact that Butch DeFeo has told so many insane versions of what happened. And therefore, there's a lot to have to wade through and a lot of facts to have to... You know, you have to sift through it almost like you're panning for gold, and you're trying to find the little flakes that flake out that are actually gold. That's what really happened versus the sand that he's mixed in with everything that, that kind of dilutes it, okay? But, but then the other frustrating element of it, on the other side, is the fact that law enforcement, I will tell you straight up, has not been honest and forthcoming about this case at all, okay? This, this case is botched. Okay, uh, Gerard Sullivan's prosecution of the case was botched. Gerard Sullivan's book was botched. Okay, and after you've got all the documents in your hand, you can begin to then lay it down and compare it. You begin to see just how botched this whole story is. Well, was, it, was is, it botched by ineptitude or was it botched intentionally? I would say, based on what I've seen, I would say a, a good degree of both. Okay. okay. But I think it becomes evident by the time you get through part two and by the time you get into part three that there was a lot of stuff going on. There's so many contradictions. There's so many different things that were going on. Um, I don't believe, for instance, I don't. they say that Suffolk police claim that the gun, that the box for the thirty five rifle, which is what ultimately made them consider Butch a suspect, they claim that that box was found around 2.30 a.m. in his room. There's a huge problem with that, and it revealed itself in the documents that we got about a year ago from Suffolk County. Okay, you've got one of the lead investigators who says that, um, that at 7.45 he left the house and transported uh, Bobby Kelsky and Ronald DeFair to the first precinct where they begin questioning him. However, at... Roughly 8.15 when they arrived at the precinct and began this questioning, nine minutes later, the same detective is at the DeFeo house, okay, and he is getting the pronouncements of each victim as being dead from the medical examiner. Now, it is physically impossible for him to be at the first precinct at this time and at the DeFeo house. So you begin to question, what does that mean? And there's a lot of implications in what that means. You know, so there's a lot of material, a lot of stuff coming in part two that is going to be, I think, very eye-opening, and it's going to demonstrate that there was a lot happening on all sides that a lot of people didn't know about. Well, we do have a, a 
point of clarification question that came in over email at spooky crew at spooky south com. and uh earlier in the show you were talking about the the improvements that had been made to the house by some of the owners in the time since and you had mentioned to brian wilson and they just wanted to clarify you don't mean the brian wilson no 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 not the beach boy <laughs> brian wilson because that would have been a strange connection considering his connection uh, you know, with with Manson and with the Tate murders and all that kind and, of stuff. And yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. You know, I get that question whenever you mention Brian Wilson. It all, I almost want to just incorporate in my answer, not the Beach Boys, Brian <laughs> Wilson, but but another Brian Wilson. <laughs> I think I think uh, Brian, the uh, one that owned the Amityville house, I I think he might have been an attorney or something along those lines. Now, the house, of course, was up for sale a few years ago. Uh, I had a grand plan of wanting to buy it and turning it into a bed and breakfast a la Lizzie Borden's, but I couldn't seem to get any investors behind it. Uh, was it actually – Was it? I know that it sold for, for uh, significantly less than what it had went on the market for, but was it, was it purchased by a private, fa- uh, private family to be used as a yes. private residence? Yes, yes. It was purchased by um, – how uh, oh, you ask me this question too fast. Their last name is D'Antonio. And they are, uh, they are local Amityville people. I want to say, I think he might have been a teacher. And, uh, he was, I know, active in the historical society and what have you. And, uh, and they picked it up. The house, uh, was listed originally for 1.15 mil. And then it was, it was actually purchased, I think, by them for right at about, I think, 950. And I had actually, uh, I had heard uh, a rumor too that uh, some of the neighbors in the area had been considering pooling their money together. Uh, to buy the house, to, to basically keep it from continuing to be, you know, such a tourist destination. But uh, there's nothing you can do. I mean, even even changing the famous, you know, eye windows hasn't really stopped people from being able to figure out where it is. Well, exactly. I mean, you know, it's not it's not hard to figure it out when you look at a picture from 1974 and then you you walk by the house. You know, I you know I've always asked myself that question too as to why. I've always wondered why, like, the village of Amityville didn't just buy the property and, and just off the house, mm-hmm. you know, because that would have taken care of it right there. It's like, okay, there's, there's, uh, there's no house present anymore, so there's no reason henceforth to, to come to Amityville. You well, know? and that's why, yeah. because everybody that comes to look at the house stops and fills up the gas tank, buys a cheeseburger, grabs a T-shirt. Sure, sure. You know, that's, I've, I've always said that, you know, Amityville... You know, and I and I and I've of recent I've dealt with the with the village, and I found them to be very nice people. I had to get some permits through them uh, for part of this project, and you know, it was they were very pleasant. I I found them very very agreeable to work with, and they stated what the terms of giving us a permit was, and and we complied with what they asked, and and all was good. But you know, at the same time, let us remember that they do make revenue off of this, and mm-hmm. that they're you know. I can't tell you how many thousands of dollars I've probably spent in the course of all the trips back and forth. You know, you stop, number one, you stay in local hotels, you buy local meals, you do fill your tank up with gas, you stop and you buy expendables like tape and stuff like that from the, the local camera shop, you know. So there is, there is obviously benefit to the story to them. Although I will say that I'm sure like when the remake came out and you had added protection and security and policing on, on Ocean Avenue to prevent mm-hmm. people from, you know, approaching the house, I'm sure that's also a tremendous cost. But but I would think that Amityville's probably made money on this deal. And I still I still keep the offer out there and you can if you ever speak to the D Antonio's you can pass it on. Whatever they want 
is how much I'm willing to pay to spend the night in the house. <laughs> but uh, I, I would ask all the time, would you live there? You know, and and I would answer that yes, I would. Except I I'm I've been in California for way too long, and the very first winter that we had would probably <laughs> kill me. So I therefore I will never live there. Come on, if you read Jay Anson's book, I mean, you know that uh, George Lutz was able to drive his motorcycle around uh, in December. So oh, of course, of course, exactly. Yeah, in the but snow and, and the ice. Had a huge heating problem the rest of the time in the house. Yeah. <laughs> that's how I, that's that's where I began scratching my head at some of the uh, illogical nature of the book. But uh one one of the questions that I do have though is uh and this is kind of just a technical question I guess if he was a filmmaker were you able to get all the principal photography shot uh from the house before they changed the windows cuz you have the original windows in those shots. Well, that is actually the house that is in our film is actually a model that we built. Oh wow. Yeah, we we built the full house. Um, at a 50, it's at a 50%, it's at a half scale. And uh, then we use some various cinematographer tricks to basically make it look bigger than, than what it did by, by over-cranking the frame rate. And it, pulled, it, it worked very well. And so what you're seeing is actually a model. We, we dressed the house to look just like what the, what the DeFeo house you know, looked like in 1974. We got all of those shots that we wanted with the High Hope sign and with our actors and with everybody else and, and everything else that we wanted. And then what we did was we then went back and we painted the house and we painted it from the, the black and white to a tan color with the uh, uh, black trim. And, we, and that, that, of course, represents pre-DeFeo and post-DeFeo years. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, we were also able to shoot some footage in Amityville of the real house itself, which will come to play later on in the film. So we were able to, we were able to represent the house, I think, fairly well. So even though it's 50% scale of the original house, I'm not going to give you 50% of whatever I would pay the D'Antonio's to spend a night in your version of the house. Well, <laughs> while I am disappointed, I will note that our house is, is no longer in existence. Oh, that's um, Our house, we, we had, uh, we constructed it. Build it, filmed it. It took us about seven months because of really, really rotten weather in California last year. That that just we lost something like two months of production time on it just because of rain. And um, we got it done, and it immediately we had to tear it down. We had we had actually offered it to the Museum of Crime and Punishment in Washington D.C. And Mm -hmm. we were talking to Janine over there, who is their uh, curator, and there was a great deal of interest on their part about dismantling it and trucking it to Washington, D.C., and putting it back together in the museum and creating, like, a, a DeFeo display. Oh, wow. Such a famous case. The biggest problem was is that it just came down to room. You know, nobody had room for the thing because at 50% scale, at half scale, the thing was still, like, 18 foot tall at its chimney. And it's too bad, though, that you just hadn't held on to it for a little bit longer because now there's these new Amityville films that are supposedly in production that I'm sure would have, you know, jumped on the chance to have have that. I mean, unless they still have the the Hollywood soundstage version of it still around somewhere. Well, you know, in all reality, Tim, that's what the interesting part of, of our decision was, was we felt that because this was something special to our film, we didn't want it appearing in anybody else's film. And so, because everybody asks me, well, you know, why didn't you sell it? You could have put that on eBay and somebody would have bought that. And I tell them, you know, I, I want this to be special to Shattered. I want this to be something that, that is unique to our film and our film only. And I was afraid that if we sold it, it would end up in, in 
other productions, just like you mentioned. Well, good you call. Know? So it, it kind of became proprietary to to us at that point, and and I feel good about that decision. I feel like you know we did. It was definitely the biggest work of art that I've ever done. You know, and uh, and it turned out well, and and now there's I think a few pieces of it still left floating around here somewhere. But <laughs> you, you must have one of the windows like in your own garage or something, right? Oh, we kept we kept the quarter moons. The quarter moons will stay with us forever. There and you go. what I'm actually doing with them is we're going to turn those into picture frames so that we can hang them in the office. Nice. Well, uh, we have about three or four minutes left in the show, um, but you've, you've mentioned that part two and part three are in the works. Do you have any kind of a timetable for when they'll be released? Well, you know, it's funny because I'm, I'm taking a, literally a break from editing right now to do the show, and so when I hang up, I'll go back to, uh, go back to the editing process. Two right now, if I had to say, if I had to put a percentage on it, I would say that, that two is definitely in a, in a freestanding rough cut. It's in a really good place. Uh, we plan to be back in scoring and mastering by the 1st of March, the latest, having uh, locked the content down. And we're shooting for sometime in April for a release of two. Excellent. And then we're thinking that three is probably going to hit sometime, uh, maybe, maybe, maybe late, late May, but probably more than likely late June. Excellent. Well, we'll want you to come back and, and join us as they come out and, and talk about each part with us more in depth. Absolutely, absolutely. Anytime. It's always my pleasure to be on the show. And when they all come out together, when they're all released, you had mentioned that you had thought about a box set. Is there a chance that you will put them all together as one collectible for people? Well, we're, we're definitely, definitely talking about that. It's definitely always been on the radar screen because it would be nice to do a lot of featurettes, you know, on the making of the film and some of the different aspects. And we thought it would be cool also to maybe offer certain interviews, you know, completely unabridged. Because there, there were there was roughly by the time it was said and done, we ended up with something like 135 tapes uh, connected to this project that are interview tapes or reenactment tapes or you know footage of the house kind of thing of our model, and so we thought it would we had enough material that it would be really nice to give the the, the diehard enthusiast you know two to maybe three hours worth of additional wow. content because we know they would enjoy that. Excellent. Well, and I can't wait for part two because you left part one off at just the right cliffhanger moment. <laughs> the film is called Shattered Hopes, the true story of the Amityville murders. Part one from horror to homicide is out now. You can get it from AmityvilleFilm.com and from Amazon.com. And, of course, that's linked up right on the front page of SpookySouthCoast.com. Ryan Katzenbach, thank you so much for joining us, and we look forward to having you coming back real soon. I look forward to it, too. You guys be very well. You, too. All right, get back to editing. I will. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right. That, uh, that does it for tonight's show. Uh, we will be back next week. Uh, at some time, the start time might be a little bit delayed because Moniz and I are going to be at Legend Trips, and Matt Costa has to actually go make money because he's not an unemployed bum like us. Well, I, formerly unemployed bums. But, yeah. I was going to say, uh, I started a new job on Tuesday. And I may be starting one. So, I mean, you know, we're doing better, but we're not, you know, as gainfully employed as Matt Costa, so he has to do that. <laughs> so he'll come here whenever he can get the chance, and uh, so stay tuned to the radio. Uh, Chris Balzano will be the guest host and, uh, well, the actual host, but he's filling in for us as our guest. Uh, and he'll be joined by Jackie Barrett, who will probably have some rebuttal to some of the things that we were talking about here tonight about the DeFeos uh, because of her close connection with Ronnie DeFeo. And Chris will talk to her about that, as well as a lot of other things that she's working on and quite a bit about the Lizzie Boyd and Bed and Breakfast, in which Jackie's had some amazing experiences and which we'll be there calling in from as well. So... Uh, that's the 
that's the show for this week. If you want to go and check out the archives, just go to SpookySouthCoast.com. All the video archives are up to date. They're all up on YouTube. It's so much easier now to just watch them on YouTube. And all the audio archives are up to date on iTunes and wherever the podcasts are found. And we're working on building that archive page on SpookySouthCoast.com as well. But just keep paying attention to the website because we're working on it. You know, we've got it. We fi- figured out we can put two people logged in at once, so we can actually <laughs> get some things changed uh, without uh, screwing it up too badly. And don't worry, Matt Costa. I actually found out. I saved the original, the whole original site. No way. Yeah. So I have it all, so that if anything goes wrong, we can always just throw it back up there, and we can pretend that this never happened. <laughs> <laughs> all right. That'll do it for this week's show. Again, uh, as I mentioned, the the we will be back uh, next week. With the Matt Costa and Chris Balzano version of Spooky South Coast, which, you know, hilarity will ensue. And Jackie Barrett is the guest, which means that FCC fines will also ensue. So until then, for Matt Costa, for Matt Moniz, for Chris Balzano, I'm Tim Weisberg. Stay spooktacular.